This is an amazing passage. And I want you to know that it might, you might be tempted to look at this passage and think, aha, finally we've gotten to these, you know, commands and these things that uh, are very highly practical. And it is true, we're going to take a practical turn. And let me tell you something, all that Paul has done up to this point has really laid the groundwork for this. I'm going to show you that here in a moment. But I want you to think about this. We live in a day, in an age here, where the maverick is extolled. Particularly we do, don't we, in Nevada? I mean, it's the guy who's done it different. The guy who's unique. Uniqueness and difference and the guy that does it his own way, those kind of people seem to be elevated as kind of the ones to look up to. He did it his own way. He stood out. He was stubborn. He didn't let people push him around, right? That kind of guy is praised. The guy that's alone, the guy that's kind of stand, that's just stands set apart and, and is off out there. And if that's the world and its message, imagine how it hears this message. The church exists to glorify God by telling people how they should live. How about that? How about this? The church exists to glorify God by getting in the face of one another and saying, you must live this way and you can't live that way. Make you feel comfortable? Difficult for the maverick to hear a message like that. There's only one way that you're going to let people tell you how to live your life. And I got to tell you, it's only if you're regenerated. It's only if you're born again. That's the only way you're going to let somebody come to you and say, you can't live this way, you need to live this other way that God says. Look at it, right? I mean, the believer will hear a message like that from the smallest of children because it's God's word. Now that's verses 9 through 21 of Romans 12. Live your life this way, Paul is saying. This is Romans 12, 9 through 21. Live it this way. You must live it this way. And he's very refined and he's very narrow and he's very specific. And what you kind of see here is that it's, it's a sort of a big list that Paul gives us, almost like a, a grocery list we see here. Now let me tell you, there's no question that you're going to be offended. I was offended several times this last week, reading through this here, and looking at this text. It's so personal. It's so in your face. It's what we need. You're going to be uncomfortable by this list, but it's, but it's like medicine that tastes bad, you know? It's good for you, right? You just got to keep reminding yourself of that, you know, as you take that stuff that tastes like chalk or feels like you're drinking, you know, the, you know, the dregs of the, of the, the bottom because you're being told it's good for you. But I tell you what, it is good for you. This is. And you'll see. And you know how it is as believers, you get conviction by the Spirit and that conviction by the Spirit leads to what? At least to obedience, doesn't it? Now, I want to be clear here, because I think it's possible to see a list here that you're going to see in the Bible here. And we see lists 
throughout the Bible. And I think it's uh, tempting and possible to just think that you can go down and check it off, sort of like a to-do list, you know? You have those? But listen, Christian living isn't like that. That's how many people, for example, look at the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll hear even unbelievers that really esteem the Sermon on the Mount. You know, uh, in fact, you realize a golden rule that comes from the Sermon on the Mount? And so you'll see people, you'll even hear unbelievers say, I live by the golden rule, right? And you know, th that's because they look at the Sermon on the Mount as a, as a checklist of to do things, and do this, and do this, and do this. And you know, you read that, and it's, a, and it's a list that Jesus gives, but let me tell you, Jesus's point there was to show you and I our absolute need of the new birth and of the Spirit of God. That's why he wrote what he did. That's why that list occurs there in Matthew 5 through 7. And oftentimes it's that way. But even if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that list is not meant for you to just go check, 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 check. Oh, there's one. I've got to work on that one. I'm telling you, each and every one of these, you're going to find yourself saying, boy, I've I got to work on that too. And there's another one. Scripture is not meant for you to look at it as, as though you're checking things off. This is like 1 John calls Jesus the word of life. It is our life. Live by these statements. In other words, you, you can't just do God's list. You can't run down the Ten Commandments and obey them, beloved. You can't get God's list and then turn it out. It's only for believers in Jesus Christ, listen, who understand Romans 12, 1 and 2. You don't get to the list before you go through Romans 12, 1 and 2. You say, well, what do we learn in Romans 12, 1 and 2? Well, we learn that the cost for being a Christian is your life, your whole body, everything. Body, mind, soul, all of it. Give it to him, right? You know, if you're hearing that message, and maybe you haven't been with us for the um, first 11 chapters of Romans, that would be a lot to be with us for. It took us a while to get through that. But you know what? You'd hear those 11 chapters, and those 11 chapters set up the very thing that we're talking about here. This very thing. It sets up the fact that you can give your life, you can give your body, you can give your soul to the Lord because he paid for you to be able to do that by the blood of Christ. And that's the short version of those first 11 chapters. And so you can say this about these lists. It's an outflow then of the new life. You can say, see it this way. Verses 9 through 21 really are just the boundary that the Lord gives to us as believers. Here's our life. Here's our new life. These are the fruits, if you will, that Jesus and the apostles talked about so often. Now listen, beloved. We have to remind ourselves all the time that coming to Christ is a narrow way, don't we? And so you look at these lists, you look at this list and it just seems so narrow and it seems like, you know, you were out here and all of a sudden the room 
kind of close in or you were driving along the road and all of a sudden it just narrowed through and, you, and you're looking at it going, can I do that? Can I make that? Can I get through that area there? You ever do that? You look at certain passages and you go, can I really obey that? It's hard. That's going to be hard. Oh, by the Spirit's power. That's why, he had, that's why he gave you, left behind, gave to you at salvation the Holy Spirit to be a deposit. To be real life in you. In fact, uh, look it up in Acts 9. Just thinking about how Christianity is described. The way people described Christianity back then was that you belonged, it says there in Acts 9, to the way. They recognized people who belong to the way. That, that's, to me, it's real fascinating. It's really an amazing description of a Christian. One who belongs to the way. Great description. The reason is because the focus isn't just knowing, is it? The way. It's, it's, the focus is on being and doing. The way. There's a way of life. There's a way of being. There's a direction. There's, there's a, a narrow, boundary way that that person's going. I like that. It's a narrow pathway. Remember Ephesians 2? Ephesians 2 connects the salvation in this way of living. Saved by grace, he says there in verses 8 and 9, to walk in the good works, he says in verse 10, that God has prepared beforehand for us, right? And that's that narrow pathway. That's a, it's a specific road. It's a, you listen, you ready for this? It's a predetermined road for us by God. Predetermined, yet we have really the, 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 the picture of it right here in Scripture. We have the map right here in Scripture. So verses 9 through 21 is really a list of those boundaries, and you can call them principles for Christian living. And it, and it really is the natural outflow, as, as we've said already, of the great doctrine of salvation, the gospel that Paul's laid out in chapters 1 through 11. This is what the gospel produces if you trust Christ alone and confess Him as Lord and Savior. This is what it produces. Beloved, I can't tell you how far many churches have strayed from the biblical gospel. And you know how you can sort of see and tell? Take a look at the fruit. What is it that the message that the church or your family or your friends or those people that you're kind of going, you know, they call themselves Christians. I'm trying to figure out where they're at. I'm trying to figure out what, what, what's, what, what, what are they doing? What's the deal? Take a look at the fruit and how they're living their life. Look at Romans 12, 9 through 21 and ask yourself, does it look like that? If it doesn't, then you've got to go back to chapters 1 through 11 and say, did you preach this gospel? Because if you, did, if you did, it should produce chapter 12, verses 9 through 21 fruit, right? They don't preach this gospel and it you know what, by the way? They get a list like this. You know what they do with a list like this? It just, it just doesn't meet reality to them. I'm telling you, I've talked to people like this that, will, that look at things like this and go, you know, I don't know what to do with that. It doesn't really meet reality. And so you see things like love without hypocrisy and fervent in spirit and bless those that persecute and never take your own revenge and abhor evil. And you just don't know what to do with that.
Listen, beloved, the biblical gospel will produce the biblical life. It will. And that's why it was so important for Paul to take 11 painstaking chapters at laying out with clarity what the gospel is. Now let me help you put this together with the flow of Paul's argument here. All right. Here's the gospel. All right. And we've learned it already. Faith in Christ. His death on the cross. Here's the gospel. And the point of it is to get you to live a certain way. You realize that? Do you realize that Paul was, he had to do those 11 chapters so that he could get to here? This is not just a, all right, uh, by the way, okay, live, do this, do this, do this, do this here. I've already told you the real important stuff. This is just kind of side stuff. By the way, you'll have a happy life if you do this. Bye. You know, I mean, this is not what he was doing. He was laying it out so that he could say, all right, are you ready for the good stuff now? I mean, I've told you the great stuff, but you know what? The reason why I told you this, to live this life so that he can live like this. They can look like this. I'm going to show you in a moment why that's so exciting to him. How do you do this? Verses one, 1 through 2. You offer yourselves to God. Your body, your mind, your will. It's all his. Then what? You serve, don't you? Verses 3 through 8. And we've learned that. And listen, it's, it's, it's all body life. It's all church here. And it's using, it's, it's all using your spiritual gifts, right? And it's using those gifts to benefit others, see? You have, you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, He gifted you a salvation to be able to use it to serve other people, see? And those people are right around you, right here. And so here you are. I get the picture here. You, I said, well, I've come here and I'm giving my, I've committed myself to him. I'm following him and you've committed your life to Christ. And in, 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 in light of his mercies, in light of all he's done for you, it's a, you know, isn't it a small thing to do to surrender yourself to living this way? To, to surrender the whole life like an offering on an altar for God to just have? And then you're placed in this group of people called the church. And I got to tell you, beloved... I got to tell you, brother, sister, we're, we're all different, aren't we? <laughs> See, you're placed with all these people here, and you've got all these differences, and maybe you've noticed some immediately, and others, you kind of got to get to know the person, then you go, ooh, they're different than me. See? And you have all these different strengths and gifts and angles, and so God's will is for you to take that gift and get going with it and use it. And it's a lot like Ephesians 4 where each joint supplies what's needed. Do you remember that? And, you know, it's a lot like 1 Corinthians 3 where it's like a building being, being put together and built up, right? Or a field that he speaks of there. Growing things. Now follow along here. If you're going to use your gift to serve, you're going to serve someone here in this church, guess what? You're going to have to relate to people, aren't you? You're going to interact with them. You're going to. You'll talk to them. They will talk to you. What will that be like? Guess what? They might offend you. You might offend them. You say, no, no, I wouldn't offend anybody. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> Haven't been here that long, have you? You will, and I will too. You're going to come in contact with people and talk with them and interact with them. And here's the rub. It won't be easy. Why? Because of the flesh. And you can read all about it there in Romans 7 where Paul says, look, I do things that I hate doing. I don't even, I don't even understand why I do those things. I don't get it. Because I want to please the Lord and yet there's this over here and it's all tied into that flesh. 
And so what Paul basically, what he does is he, is he, is he, he says basically, look, you're going to have these relationships with others and, and if, if you're going to serve them, so you're going to need to know how to do that. And so what he does is he gives guidelines, he gives principles. Some people say commands here for how to live within the sphere of four different kinds of relationships. Let me tell you this though, a little side note. There are few commands in this section. This is just your little, this is your little grammar lesson for, for I know, you know, kind of you look at your English and you go, wow, this is, those are, look at all these commands. And if you were to read like, for example, James 4 verses 7 through 10, he has like, I think 10 commands there, just boom, 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 boom. This is not that. This is not what this is. You look at it, the Greek and there's a few commands with a string of participles. And what that means to me is this. His focus is not so much command number one, command number two, command number three, command number four. Do this, do this, do this. It's more this. Here is, this is the way the life should look like. I want to give you the sphere of how it should look like. Now you remember we said verses three through eight was that church finally getting in motion. Here is now narrowing in and looking at what the motion actually looks like. And it's all in these different spheres. By the way, not, not the easiest uh, uh, section here to, to, to outline. But I think that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones had it right. Um, so my outline is going to reflect more of what, how, how he kind of looked at this. That's not exactly, but very, very similar. Four areas of relationships that you're going to have to account for, beloved. Now, let me kind of give you a little, little bit of an overview, and then we'll, uh, we'll get specific and detailed here. Now, the Christian life works inside out. I think that's the best way to start. It works from the inside out. You can't go outside in. If you go outside in, you're going to be in trouble. This is what I mean by that. The farthest outside is dealing with all those problems that you have out there, right? All these problems. Like problem people, people that don't like you, people that now that you're a Christian, they go, you know, you're weird. Uh, you used to be fun before. Now, you, you know, the jolly has just gone all out, right? And so you just go, who is this guy? And so, you know, so you might be tempted to think, well, we got to work at that. We got to figure that out out there. No, no, no. You work from the inside out. You don't go outside in, okay? And that's really the, the pattern that you have here. So the first relational sphere you work in, now listen, is you. That might sound kind of funny. Is that a relationship with yourself? Well, sure. You, I mean, you, you got to understand you, don't you? You have to understand your, you know, what are the areas in your life? What are the areas that you need to be repenting of? You need to understand where you're at spiritually. So this is this first relational sphere. You have to get down where you're at and understand God's ex expectations for you personally. And that's verse 9. Secondly, you move out into the church. And that's verses 10 through 13. And so you see affection for others like a brother and preference to others and taking care of their needs and stuff like that. And that's all here. And you're just kind of moving out, see. And then third, you, you need to know how to use your, your gifts in, in relating to the world. And that's verses 14 and 16. And so you see persecution and difficult times, but instead of arguing with the world and treating, you know, uh, and treating that, them lower than you, you bless them and you spend time with the lowly of the world. See? 
And then finally, the fourth sphere. And you kind of see this enlarging, can't you? This four, the fourth sphere is uh, uh, the enemies. And this is verses 17 through 21. The enemies. You know, I'll tell you what, beloved. If you get serious about doing what, what Romans 12, 1 and 2 say, you're going to make enemies. You just will. He said a, an acceptable, holy sacrifice. I mean, you, you know what holiness looks like in the workplace? Well, I'll tell you, number one, it's very productive. But number two, it's annoying to people that want to get away with their sin. It is. They don't, they don't like that. They might not tell you, but they might not even be too thrilled with how hard you work. You're going to give yourself to really, truly doing what the Lord wants. Making us all look bad. Yeah. You're going to have enemies. You're going to tell people about Christ and they're not going to like it. Instead of protecting yourself and defending yourself and even getting back at those that strike you or hurt you, you know what he says here? Pour on grace and love. And you're going to see that here. In fact, you could, you could sum up all of this whole section with one word, and it's the word love. I do believe, actually, and I'll show you here in a moment that why I'm saying this. But this section is really an, an expansion, if you will, of what Jesus said in Matthew 22. Do you remember what he said there in Matthew 22? He said the whole Old Testament can be summed up with what? The, the two great commands. The first one is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. The second one is what? And love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he said that. Do you remember the context he was saying that to? Pharisees, all these people that were trying to test him and challenge him. Love for God with all your heart. Love for the neighbor. Luke 10, who's my neighbor, right? What did Jesus say? Anyone who has a need. And will you listen, beloved? All people have needs. <laughs> so, right? So who's your neighbor? Everyone. And in the end, you're you're able to be at peace with even your enemies. And if you will, this is really the exact same thing that Paul did in 1 Corinthians. Remember, um, remember 1 Corinthians when he wrote it. Chapter 12, he starts this great section on spiritual gifts, and he's saying, here's how you need to be used and all that. And then in chapter 14, he corrects their abuse of a couple of spiritual gifts, you know, prophecy and tongues. And All right, you know, spiritual gifts, a real major theme. And chapter 13 is all the, uh, about what? Love, see? And what was he saying? Look, You've got these gifts. You've got to know how to use them. Use them in a way where you love others. And did you know back then, really, that love was not as, it wasn't as defined, really. That was the first time love and his, you know, people could actually see love being so defined there. 1 Corinthians 13. And in all the spheres, the Lord uses them to build his church. We grow, beloved, relationally this way through these spheres. Very important. Now let's start in the first sphere of relationships, the one that we have with ourselves. What are the relational spheres that our Lord builds His church in? First, He built in a personal arena. In a personal arena. You start with you. You say, wait a minute, but don't we start with God? Well, we already did that, right? We, yes. When you're talking about coming, becoming a believer, we're talking about the grand scope of Christian life, absolutely you start with God. But we already did that. Now we're on to people 
I mean, we did that in verses 1 through 2. You're offered to God, right? You're offered to the body in verses 3 through 8. And once that's your life, then you get into some relationships, don't you? And the way to start in that arena is with you. It's 1 Timothy 4.16. Pay close attention to your, your life and your doctrine. Remember that? Remember Acts 20 when he says, All right, shepherds, elders, uh, you're going to shepherd the church, but you need to guard yourself. You need to really pay close attention to yourself, he says. Make sure you are what you need to be, see. And that's the way it always is in everything. Think of all kinds of relationships. You always, I tell you, you always work from the inside out. You say, well, this marriage is really struggling. Well, what should we do? Start with yourself. Are you living a holy life? Then work, you know, you, out to, you know, to, with your spouse. Well, my parenting really needs some help. Oh, really? Okay, parenting 101. What are we going to start with? Should we talk about what, what I should do with my kids? Nope. How about maybe my wife? Nope. You. Are you the real deal in the home? If you're not, then it won't matter how much you change what you do with your kids. You need to change you, right? Inside out always. So here we go. There are three vital pieces that you need in order to examine how effective you are with others. And if you don't have these three, then you'll never be effective at having relationships with the church, with the world, and with your enemies. It won't matter. You will not handle them well. What are they? Here they are. Number one, pure love. Pure love. What does it say there, verse 9? Let love be without what? Hypocrisy. The first place to start with when you talk about practical Christian living is love. It is the greatest thing, is it not? I mean, didn't the Lord always say that? It's the greatest thing. Love. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. In fact, if you look literally, he does say that. At the end of chapter 12, beginning of chapter 14, and all the way through chapter 13, he is telling us love is the greatest. You know, the, the uh, Apostle John, it is said of the Apostle John, and as he aged and as he got older, when he visited uh, people in this congregation, he would just be very simple. And he would just was constantly telling people, brethren, love one another. Love one another. How powerful that must have been from an apostle that almost everything they wrote. Examine the Gospel of John and how much how focused he is on love. Just John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? So he's focused on God's love. You get to chapter 13 of, of John, and he's Jesus who loved them all the way to the end, see? You get the first John, and what's he talking about? Love, 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 love. All over the place. The apostle of love. Later in Romans 13, Paul says this in verse 8. Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. See? Now watch this. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfillment of the law, he says. And you know something, beloved? That's ab absolutely true, isn't it? I mean, think about that. Love fulfills the law. You remember the Ten Commandments? Henry Drummond, a uh, pastor in the early 1900s, said this about uh, the Ten Commandments and love. He said this, If you have love, you don't need to be told those commands. Listen. In other words, 
Why would a person who loves another be told not to steal from that person, right? You have to tell a person, don't steal, don't steal from that person. There's, there's, there's love. Love is going to try to protect that other person's stuff, not steal it. I mean, love would cause, uh, why, would, why be told not to kill if, if you have love, right? I mean, or not to commit adultery if you have love, right? You're just going to, you're going to do those things. Love's the hub of Christian living. It's everything. Remember the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5? Starts with what? Love. You know all those other fruits? They just come under that umbrella of love. See? Remember the one major lasting truth Jesus taught his disciples with a massive illustration in John 13? Love each other. Remember that? Wash the feet. And he said, I'm just doing this to show you guys as an example of what it needs to look like. And he didn't mean by that, all right, I want you guys to go out there and start this foot washing, you know, uh, foot washing, you know, service. He meant by that, serve each other, love each other, care for each other. And do it by becoming low. Now, let me show you what Paul's getting at here in, in, in chapter 12, verse 9, when he says, let love be without hypocrisy. First of all, I want you to know this, it's not a command. He said, well, it looks like a command. It's not. It's, in fact, actually, it's really amazing. It's just a statement. Literally, he is saying in, in this text, uh, it would be like this. In fact, I, I kind of look at it more as a title. L an unhypocritical love, or a sincere love. And it's like, it, there's no verb there or anything. It just stands right out. Very fascinating. It's a statement. And you could say it this way. Love is unhypocritical. Or it's sincere. I think the King James says, love w without dissimulation. That's where things are, you know, d don't match. You have to have a matching love, right, is basically what, he, what he's saying. Christian love looks like that. Where it matches. Now, I mentioned to you Matthew 22, and... and and this is a section that gives an interesting picture of the, the, the two side by side. The genuine love and hypocritical love. True love and phony love, you could call it. Matthew 22, remember that? And I mentioned to you already, Jesus here is saying the greatest command is, is to love God and the second is to love your neighbor. Love God and love others. Now watch this, very next chapter. Listen to this. Chapter 23. Jesus said this about the religious leaders of Israel. All that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and they don't do them. Translation. They don't love you. There's no love there. That's not love. They say, but they do differently. Why? Why? Well, if you get up to that upper echelon, maybe if you're not redeemed, you've got to find a way to look like you're the somewhat of the real deal without being the real deal. And 
other words, they're hypocrites. Verse 15, hypocrites, it says there. He calls them hypocrites. Jesus calls them in verse 16, blind guys, and in verse 17, fools. And then in verses 23 and 25, hypocrites again. Hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. That's what hypocritical love looks like. If you want to know what it looks like? The Pharisees. I'll give you another person it looks like. Judas, right? Remember that? Remember when he came to betray Jesus? What did he come to betray him with? A kiss. A sign of affection. And the Jesus said, oh, you betray the Son of Man with a kiss, huh? The ki In other words, with great affection, huh? In fact, in one of the, one of the Gospels, it, it conveys that he repeatedly kissed Jesus on the neck. Whew. I mean, are you kidding me? He was doing an acting job, that's why. I've got to make this convincing to everybody around here. I've got to make this convincing to Jesus. The Son of God who, knew, who knows everything? Who can read your heart? You think, you're, you think all those little kisses are going to make him think, well, maybe he does love me. Then there's the contrast of the, of, of the loving God with all your heart and neighbor Love neighbors yourself. They don't live lives of love. And that's how you spot hypocritical love. Looks like the Pharisees or Judas love. Second Corinthians 6. When Paul was defending his motives in ministry, he said he served giving no cause for offense in anything. He said in everything committing ourselves as servants of God while they were afflicted and beaten in prison and went out without food and starving and all that. Verse 6. He said I was doing ministry in purity in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. In genuine love. See? Same word. In love that was real. In love that was actually what it claimed to be. Genuine love. In other words, not phony love, not fake love, but real love. Peter the Apostle was sensitive about that too. In uh, 1 Peter 1.22, for example, he says this, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purify your souls. Now, when he says that, that's, that means receive the gospel, okay? Since you've received the gospel, since your souls are purified, since you've been saved, since you heard the message and obeyed its call to repent, and your soul was then purified by the blood of Christ, why why we, why we get our souls purified? For what reason? Why why'd that happen to salvation? Look at what it says. Listen to what it says next. For a sincere love of the brethren. See, you couldn't love others without it. I mean, you have to be. All of us have a, a little something there, a little little uh, agenda, don't we? Outside of Christ, all of us had that. We had a little shtick, a little something that we were after. A little, you know angle, edge, if you will, that was trying to get something from somebody. And at salvation, it all changes. Same word, by the way, in Romans 12. A love that is not hypocritical. Fascinating word in the Latin, by the way. Sincere. It means, uh, in Latin, it meant with, with believability. A love you can believe. A love you can trust. Not feigned, doesn't pretend, is not pretense. You can trust this love. See? Now Peter's saying that you, you, you come into the Christian life re, reprogrammed that way, and so therefore, then he says, fervently love one another from the what? From the heart. He says a similar thing in, 
in uh, chapter 4, verse 8, verse 7, he says, the end of things are near. Why is that important? Well, God's going to judge. What do we do? Verse 8, keep fervent in your love for one another. Great. Now, that word fervent, by the way, same word fervent used in chapter 1, verse 22. It means literally the stretching of a muscle out. As far as you can stretch that muscle to the max. What are you doing that for? Well, in this context, to grab others to love them, right? To love others with. How are you going to show that? Verse 8. Why is it so important? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now that's to love that's not fake or shallow, right? Love that covers a multitude of sins. You know what that means? Your response is not, you know, you've done that to me three times. That's it. That's it. Saturation point. I'm done. That's it. I mean, you know, you've, you've done too much. Matthew 18, right? 70 times 7. How many times, right? So what Paul's saying in Romans 12, 9 is that our love is not to be pretending. It's not to play act. It's an honest love. And you know, beloved, hypocrisy is probably the worst sin out there, isn't it? Let me think about hypocrisy. The reason is because it dresses itself up to look like the real thing. It has an appearance, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's Judas who was concerned about throwing money away. Remember when he said that in John 12? That could have been spent on the poor. Sounded like a good game. Talked like a good game. But of course he was hiding an evil heart. Or trying to. You got to give the externals. You got to get people to, to think it's one thing. Great test of true love. 1 John 3 verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Because we love the brethren. Then verse 17, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? How's that love real? Verse 18, let us not love with word or with tongue, but what? Indeed and truth. There it is, true love. Love that isn't pretending, stretches out to meet needs. Let me give you a picture of this here from Luke 10. I love how it's put here in Luke 10. And Jesus called the Pharisees' attention to their lack of love there. Remember how he did it? You got this guy that came and he said, Oh, Lord, how do, I, how do you get eternal life? And he was just trying to test Jesus. Didn't really want to know that. Try to trap him. And the reason is, by the way, the reason, you know why? Is because he knew that Jesus had been hanging out with sinners. And he just wanted to show Jesus to be wrong. And so here he is, and he says, uh, so, how do you get eternal life? Jesus says, love God with all your heart, with all your, and your neighbors yourself, again, saying such similar things that he said before. And, you know, if you think of it this way, in other words, the key is you need to have a transforming love, one that causes you to be able to love God and others, even the people that you can't stand, like those Samaritans. Oh, by the way, let me give you a parable. And he gives him that parable because the guy says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus knows exactly what this guy's trying to say. And so he shows him the wickedness and evil of his own heart that lacked love. That was, he had this guy had a phony heart, a, a make-believe heart. 
Verse 29, it says this about the guy wishing to justify himself. That's why he said that, who's my neighbor? Ah, I got to look good. Got to justify myself. Got to look good to people around me. And you remember what the Samaritan did. He reached out and cared for a man who was clearly in need when, the, when a, there was a Levite that came by that didn't do that. And all Jesus was doing was giving a story that portrayed the picture of exactly what this man, this lawyer lacked. Listen, beloved, Jesus said in John 13, that's what marks us out as Christians. The kind of love that we have for one another. It's not a deception. It's not a facade or appearance only. It's not one of those deals where, you know, you scratch my back and I scratch yours, or I scratch your back so that you'll scratch mine, right? It's not one of those deals. Okay, you're, you're trying to understand where you're at. You look at your love. Is it real? Are the motives pure? Then the second vital piece to look for to have effect of this in all your relationships with others is this. If you first look for pure love, then secondly, passionate holiness. What does he say? Abhor what is what? Evil. Now I want, you to, I want to tell you something to connect to the last point. In a sense, when he says abhor what is evil, he is saying love God with an unhypocritical love. Love others with an unhypocritical love. Same, saying the same thing. Loving God, loving others, you're going to do what? You're going to hate evil. You're going to hate sin. I tell you what, if you and I were truly convinced of the ruination of how sin really does ruin yourself and others, you'd, you would just hate it, wouldn't you? If you were really convinced of that, you'd just hate it. Sin kills relationships. It stops them dead in their tracks. Envy, jealousy, right? We can go on. Bitterness, all that stuff just kills relationships. It's hard to serve another person like that, isn't it? When you have in your mind, I want to get mine. Here's a test of true love. Does it hate evil? You know, if it doesn't, it's not true. It's not God-defined love. Great statement of the Old Testament looks similar to our verse. Psalm 97.10 Hate evil, you who love the Lord. Quick little test here. Kind of going uh, on the basis of those words. What does it mean to love the Lord then? You hate what? Evil. It's very clear there. So do you love the Lord? How do you know? Do you hate evil? See? It defines your love. And you know the whole... Think about what this picture is, is giving us here. When you say it that way, basically what you're saying then is that you're saying evil or sin is the opposite of God and so you're never more like God than when you're hating evil or when you're, the way we're saying it here, passionate about holiness. Same thing. Notice, by the way, that it doesn't say, uh, uh, don't go in the direction of evil. It doesn't say that. It doesn't even say, don't do evil. He says instead, hate evil. He's talking about our passions. He's talking about our desires. He's talking about before it becomes an action, it needs to be even deeper, something else. 
Now, uh, we have a hard time getting this because I think we don't spend enough time meditating on God. You know, this is because, you know, you look at the doctrine of God, you know, you want to start with the doctrine of God? And I believe the number one place to start with the doctrine of God is holiness. That God is holy. He's separate from sin, absolutely separate. God has an utter distaste of evil. In fact, Habakkuk 1.13 says, it's impossible for God to look on that, right? To look on evil, to look on sin. Let me give you another thought here. Romans there in Romans 12.9, that word abhor, it's, um, it's in the present tense. And the idea is to be constantly hating that which is evil, is, is, is the idea. What's that look like? What's it look like to be constantly hating evil? Let me give you a picture of that from Psalm 101. In fact, if you want to turn to Psalm 101, do that. And we'll just spend a few minutes there. But it's a, it's a great picture of, of hating evil. And I got to say, one of the marks that people are depraved is you'll notice if you do nothing they have a heart, an evil heart, that grows more and more in love with what? Evil. So this is, a, this is a work of God in the life of a believer to do this. But start in verse 1. Verse 1 he says, I will sing of loving kindness and justice. Who's, who's loving kindness and justice? To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. So we're talking about him saying, you know, I'm so excited about God's love. I'm so excited about God being just. Worship God for who He is. He's loving. He's just. He always does what is right. And then verse 2. I will give heed to the what? The blameless way. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. Look at how David defines purity. Verse 3. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Now watch this. I hate the work of those who fall away. I just hate it when a person falls away. I hate their work. I hate the work of evildoers. I hate the work of those that are not believers and are doing things that are anti-God. Hate it, he says. Then verse 3, it shall not, he is, he is very determined here. It shall not fasten its grip on me. In other words, I hate those people who claim to be one thing but are not. Who claim God but are far from him. I am not going to let those kinds of people have a grip on me, on my heart. That's what he's saying. Verse 4, a perverse heart shall depart from me. I'm going to make it a hard issue. Watch my motives. I, I, I will know no evil, he says. My aim is to hate evil. What's it look like? Verse 5. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. Literally, it's silence. I'm not going to let people who talk like that be around me, he says. I'll do it. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. Can't stand people with pride, he says. Now, for time's sake, look, skip to verse 7. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. 
Get rid of the evil. That's passion, isn't it? Get rid of it. I don't want to have it around me. Don't get, if if, if uh, the pool is evil, don't walk by the edge, right? Get far away from that. Get away from that. A couple of great verses of Proverbs to help you understand what it means to abhor, to hate evil, that is. In Proverbs 9.10, you remember this one. Uh, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of knowledge, right? The beginning of wisdom. Now watch this. What's that fear of the Lord look like? Proverbs 8.13. This is the verse that you're going to want to write down or look up or something like that. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now he says the fear of the Lord is the knowledge, right? Knowledge of God. Fear of the Lord is the wisdom of God. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Fascinating thought. Now what's that look like? End of verse 13. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Strong language, isn't it? So you ask yourself, do you hate those things? Do you hate pride? When you see it, does it do you kind of go, man, I, I, I can't stand that. First place to see it, of course, is in yourself, right? Then you look out, see, you, man, you want to help others know what it looks like. Arrogance, do you hate arrogance? Do you hate a perverse mouth? Amos 5.15, hate evil, love good. Real simple, right? Real fascinating uh, verse also in Jude, verse 23. The section in Jude there, he says, he says basically, uh, go in and snatch those who are in the fire, showing mercy on them, right? Have an evangelism, an evangelistic heart bent towards them. But watch this. You get to verse 23, and he cautions those that are going to do that kind of ministry. In preaching the gospel to those people, he says... But I want you to go in there when you preach to the unbeliever with fear. Why? Listen. It's fascinating. Hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. In other words, be careful. Be careful that you don't become like the one that you're preaching to. Right? Be careful. Always Never trust the flesh. Never. And be far from the line of evil. First Thessalonians 5.22 Abstain from every form, every appearance of evil. Comes in all sorts of shade and color. Great picture of what this looks like in Hebrews 1.8. But of the Son, talking about Jesus, he says, God says this in the scripture about Jesus, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, we, we've heard that before. You, and sometimes we stop there and go, ah, oh, it's a great thought. We keep going. And the righteous scepter is a scepter of his kingdom. Great statement. Jesus is Lord. He's king. He's got the right to the throne of God. Why? Verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. What a picture. It's a picture of, of Romans 12. Nine. This is what it looks like. This is the life. The, what defined Jesus? His love for righteousness, but also his hate. 
How many people you here talking about that? Oh, I just, Jesus is so helpful to me and his life. And I, it's so, oh, so good to see in the Gospels because he demonstrated to me what hate really looks like. Really? Yeah, he hated evil. He hated lawlessness. And I love him for that. Because it showed me what, I, what my hate needs to look like. See? <clears throat> so Jesus, you can say, his, his, his great passion, of course, was holiness. He hated anything that was outside of God's law. That's how you have to see things. Passion for holiness, for God's holiness. You say, well, how do I know what's evil? I mean, if I have to hate, hate it, what's it look like? Well, obviously, anything that's opposed to God's will, anything that's outside of the word. But let me give you a specific list that, our, that, that God gives us. Proverbs 6, and it's probably a familiar one that you've, you, you, you've read many times. Verse 16. Six things the Lord, which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination. It's just a stylistic way of talking. You say, why didn't he just say, you know, there are seven things that the Lord hates, right? But it's just kind of a stylistic way of, of, of talking. And then he says this. Haughty eyes. Here's the list. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies. And one who spreads strife among brothers. Very clear. God hates that stuff, right? And you have to also. What's he hate? Pride, lies, murdering the innocent, wicked pretense, feet that run to sin, being a false witness, and being a man of friction. He doesn't want you to be that. He, he hates that. Run away from it. You can go to uh, Isaiah 1 and see another list. And basically there it says that God hates phony religion there. Can't stand those, the phoniness of religion. I don't want you to bring your offering anymore, it says. So wait a minute. Didn't he say he wants the offering in Exodus? Yeah, from holy hearts, right? Hearts that are seeking that. You know, it's, it's, it's really a picture of people that dress up and supposedly serve God, but their hearts are far from Him. God hates that. It's not just hating evil because, by the way, it will bring you bad things. It's not just hating evil because of the consequence of it. It's hating it because it's opposed to God. And I believe John MacArthur puts it best when he said this, No one is truly obedient to this command who only fears the consequence of evil. You hate it, Listen, beloved, not because of what it's the consequence, but because of what it is. Because it's an offense to our God who we've now been reconciled to. That's why we hate it. Not because of what it will bring if you do it. Not because you're afraid to get caught. One last point here. So we see the pure love. You're looking at your heart and you're examining of pure love. Examine it for passionate holiness. One last one. Persistent goodness. What's he say there? Cling to what is good. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us about this word cling. He says the Greek word conveys the idea of sticking two pieces of wood together with glue. I like that. You know, by the way... Uh, it's also the word that, that describes marriage, the one flesh relationship. Same word. Cling. 
cleave, stick, be close, one flesh with goodness. Stick yourself to the good with glue. And the good here is it's a qualitative good. Uh, it's a beauty. It's the, it's the things that God defines as good. What are those? Well, you're going to have to know God's word, aren't you? You're going to have to know what God calls good. You know, you, you can't cling. You can't cling to what you don't know or you aren't thinking about. So you've got to get those thoughts in your head, don't you? And that brings us back to Romans 12 too. Being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or Philippians 4.8. Here's how you cling. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there is any excellence, no, we can... Sit down if you want, and uh, we'll tell you more about uh, that. <laughs> Back there. No? Well, that was a little different. Uh. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. Wow, I kind of got, got a bit off <laughs> Oh, boy. That's love. That's right. <laughs> Through the door, right? Wow, you know. <laughs> well, listen here. We're talking about the goodness, what we're to be clinging to. All of this goes together, beloved. If you put all these thoughts together, the pure love, the passion and holiness... The persistent goodness. I mean, you have pure love, so you'll hate sin, and you'll see good, and you'll stick right to it. And it really defines the defines Christian living. It defines a, a Christian love. A believer is characterized by these things. By the way, there's no middle ground. There's no neutral position. You're either moving away from evil and to the good defined by God and his word or away from God and towards that evil and from his good. There's no neutral ground here. And I think this is really important. Sometimes we feel like we can be in a neutral place but it's not true. The moment you stop reading your Bible, the moment you stop meditating on Scripture, the moment you stop praying, you've opened yourself in a, in a way that you're going to now go the opposite direction. And you feel it. I'm sure you feel it. We all do. Part of the problem, beloved, is we have to, to keep getting our minds deprogrammed from the junk that we've allowed to put in it. Don't we? And we need the washing of the word, Romans 12, 2. And so this really is a passion for holiness, a passion for good, a, a persistence in sticking close to it. Now let me give some concluding thoughts here as we close. 
So you have this giftedness. You want to serve, right? We've talked about that. We've laid that out here in, uh, in Romans 12. You start serving, and then there's all these people, and you find yourself maybe struggling because you're serving sinners. What do you do? First, well, some thoughts, some guidelines here. First, remember, remember that you're one of those sinners. Remember that you're one of them. You know how I know? Look at the list that Paul gives here in verse 9. How are you doing? Right? We've all fall short. We're one of those sinners, you know? And so you remember that you're one of them as you are serving others. Secondly, though, do some self-examination by asking three questions. What or who do I love? What do I hate? And what am I clinging on to? Very simple, right? And then last thought here. Look to Jesus Christ who has lived this life and still does. Confess and look to whom? Christ. Confess and look to Christ. Well, we're just getting started here. We, we managed through the, uh, this verse 9, and what a powerful verse it, it, it is. May the Lord give us his grace to do these things and to live a life that looks like this. we we'll start with ourselves. We're going to move on to the next sphere next week, okay? Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, I praise you and I thank you, dear Lord. You're so good and kind. You give us everything that we need through Christ, Lord. And Father, um, as we are thinking about ourselves, Lord, and where we're at and, and what we're like spiritually, and Father, I, I, we uh, believers in Christ are definitely at this place and we have given ourselves to you, Lord. We want to be useful to you, Father. And we want to be mindful that as we get out there and serve with these gifts that these are going to be challenges. And we pray, Lord, that you would, by your grace, by the power of the Spirit, would cause us to have this holy hatred against evil, Lord. We would hate what you hate and we would love what you love. That we would not, that we would be one thing, Lord, and not two things. We would, that our love for others, Lord, would be not a what can I get out of it, type of love, but just a pure, unconditional love that just gives like you gave. Father, we can't do this. We can't be all of this unless you move in our hearts, unless you change us and make us more like Christ. And we do pray, Father, that you would do this work for your glory, to lift up the Son, that all might see him and praise you and exalt Christ. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we ask for this. Amen.